Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Neoliberalism is a word that gets bandied about quite a bit in contemporary politics to describe a set of economic policies which seek to roll back the state's role in the market economy and also in people's lives. It does seem to mean different things to different people, but it's generally held to describe an ideology which has its origins among a group of central European intellectuals, chief among them the Austrian Friedrich Hayek, in the years just before and just after the Second World War. It achieved greater prominence in the 1970s in in Britain and America in particular, but it was in the 1980s in those countries under Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan respectively that the neoliberal project of rolling back the state really began to have material impact. In the 90s, with the collapse of Soviet communism, the coming to power of free market friendly centre left leaders like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, along with the liberalisation of global trade, neoliberalism became the de facto underlying principle of the international order. But the financial crash of 2008, the rise of populism in Western democracies and of new forms of authoritarian capitalism in China and elsewhere have challenged that order in fundamental ways. A new book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, looks at the history of neoliberalism in America and beyond. Its author is Gary Gerstel, the Mellon Professor Emeritus at the University of Cambridge, and he joins me today. Gary, welcome. Thank you. Very good to be here with you today. Does my definition of neoliberalism stand up? Yes, yes. It's a term that, as you suggested, is, is, uh, is, is fought over. Uh, both in terms of what it means exactly and whose interests it's serving. But I think you got the core of it. It's, it's, it's an ideology that looks to free the power of capitalism from excessive constraints, uh, usually thought to be congealing in a state that is trying too hard to manage capitalism in the public interest. And it calls for actions and policies to be taken so as to free the power of capitalism to transform the world, the belief being, the ideology being that if you do that, that will generate the greatest amount of wealth. And even if it generates a fair amount of social and economic inequality, there will be so much wealth to go around that all boats will rise. Uh, so it And it stands in contrast to an earlier period, uh, what I call the New Deal order, and what in America has come to uh, be associated with the term liberalism. It's really a form of social democracy where states seek actively to manage capitalism in the public interest because capitalism is regarded as too dangerous, too brutal, left to its own devices, uh, simply to order the world. And some powerful institution is required to constrain it, redistribute some of its wealth in the public interest. Neoliberalism opposes that, oppose, sees in state regulation of the economy forms of tyranny that lead to unacceptable forms of collectivism. And 
and also uh, shrinking to the point of disappearance the rights of individuals to liberty. I mean, your your book focuses on the United States, but I think its its history is obviously deeply relevant to all of us. Not least because the United States has been the most powerful economy in the world for for most of your and my lifetime. Um, but also because where America goes, others tend to lead. It does answer just in relation to your definition there. One of those things that have always bugged me about American politics. I've never understood why people describe left-leaning policies as as liberal in the in the United States and you hear these arguments with somebody saying oh he's very liberal on healthcare or uh, and that means they want more state intervention which as far as I was concerned was always the opposite so it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fault he he robbed the liberal term for his political project yes i regard this as one of the great terminological heists uh in political history and it has created all kinds of terminological mischief uh I think it's best, from a European perspective, it's best to understand Roosevelt as a social democrat rather than a liberal. But for complicated sets of reasons, it's hard to be anything in America that is associated with socialism, or even a modest socialism of one form or another. And so he chose the name uh, liberal to substitute for social democracy. And he was so successful electorally that the intervention in the heist that he committed sticks. And so if you call someone in America a liberal today, you are ref- you are referring to someone who believes that the power of the state should be enlisted to regulate the private economy and private markets in the public interest. That is what liberal means. Now, it has another meaning as well, which is individual liberty, uh, cosmopolitanism, a variety of lifestyles. Uh, That is a meaning associated with liberalism in America as well. And that would be familiar to the meaning of a certain kind of liberalism in Europe. But what's crucially different about America is the use of the term liberal to, uh, to indicate a regime which is deeply committed to public controls of the private economy in the general interest. And that, in Europe, would be called social democracy. Indeed. And I suppose the question then is that if you take the neo out of it, or you take Franklin Delano Roosevelt out of it for a moment, what is it that distinguishes neoliberalism from the kind of the liberalism of the of, of the 19th century, or indeed the sort of the, the great thinkers of classical liberalism, as it's called, of the of the 18th century, the Adam Smiths and so on? Well, many people who write about neoliberalism today, and they are largely on the left, think of classical liberalism, what I call classical liberalism of the 19th century, as uh, simply freeing up the natural instincts of individuals to truck, barter, and exchange, to use Adam Smith's words, as as they saw fit. And they wanted to remove all barriers to that, monarchs, mercantilism, aristocrats, They saw the heavy hand of the state in all areas of economic activity and not a very shrewd use of the state. So classical liberals think of themselves as freeing the individual and freeing individual enterprise and free enterprise from the the heavy power and boot of state regulation. Uh, And people who write about neoliberalism say this happened rather spontaneously in the 19th century once you you removed state restrictions, liberals could get on with the business of creating their own economy, establishing their own markets without much government control or government involvement. 
Neoliberalism, by contrast, is thought to require a lot more intervention by governments to organize markets to be robust and dynamic. Uh, that's how neoliberals distinguish, distinguish themselves from classical liberals. I don't find that very convincing as an argument, simply because so much new work has been done on classical liberalism, 19th century liberalism, so that we now understand that no markets work if left to their own devices. They have to be organized by law. They have to have rules of contract. They have to have rules of exchange. People who break those rules have to be punished. Markets do not thrive in nature. Individuals may want to organize a market. That may be a natural impulse. But for markets to come to characterize whole societies, they must be organized. They must be ordered. There must be institutions capable of providing that order. So there is a paradox built into classical liberalism, which reproduces itself in neoliberalism. And that is state power is required to organize markets so that they can be free. <laughs> of state intervention and state control. Uh, and I think that applies to classical liberalism as well as neoliberalism. So that distinction, I don't think holds up very well. I, I find it more convincing the, that the term neoliberalism is adopted because Franklin Roosevelt stole the term liberalism. And you, so if you wanted to go back to classical liberalism, you could not call yourself that anymore. And, and America is full of people who want to call themselves classical liberals. Herbert Hoover, is one Hayek comes to America, spends a lot of time there. Uh, he's, he's another. Milton Friedman is a third. All these people think of themselves as classical liberals, but they can't call themselves by that name because that name has been appropriated. Oh my God. How did they do that by social Democrats? God forbid. But the, the deed has been done. And now that the deed is done and the Democratic party is so closely associated with social democracy. Classical liberalism cannot be repossessed as a meaningful term in American politics. I suppose the other use that it has is as these set of ideas uh, brought to America by Hayek, but one of the reasons why he went to America was because he, he looked to the Anglo-Saxon countries, to the United Kingdom and the United States in particular, as being the most natural home because of their tradition of, of, of law and parliamentary assembly and so on. So it's the, the most natural home for his ideas. But as they moved out of the academy and into well-funded think tanks in the 1970s, it's just, it's just at that point where that New Deal order, and I know you've written a book about this in the past, that New Deal order is starting to crack under the pressure of the oil crisis and the recessions and the, the various tensions on the established monetary system. And there's an opportunity here for, I suppose, a kind of counter-reformation against, against that system. And that's where these ideas move out of a minority taste and move out of the academy and start having real electoral valence. That's exactly right. I, um, uh, um, committed to the notion of political order, by which I mean this, uh, that a, uh, a, a constellation of political parties, ideologies, constituencies, donors, tries to establish itself as a dominant force in politics that carry beyond two, four, and six-year electoral cycles. So much oxygen in America is used to talk about elections every two years or every four years or every six years. My argument is that in the last hundred years in America, 
politics has been dominated by two political orders. The first was the New Deal order, which arose in the Great Depression under Franklin Roosevelt, came apart in the 1970s, as you suggested. And then the neoliberal order, which took root in the 1970s, flourished in the 1980s and 1990s and into the first decade of the 21st century before it cracked up. My point is that once a political order establishes itself, its core ideas become the reigning ideas, not just of the party putting them forward, but in all of politics. So much so that the opposing party has to submit to these dominant ideas. Thus, in the era of the New Deal order, when a Republican is finally elected president in 1952, this is Dwight D. Eisenhower, the first Republican elected in 20 years. So they've been in the wilderness a long time. Eisenhower leads the Republican Party to acquiesce to the core principles of the New Deal order. A strong state will is necessary to manage capitalism. The state must distribute wealth. He endorses taxation on, on the highest wage, uh, on the highest income earners, let's not call them wage earners, in excess of 90%. This is a Republican president. If he did that today, he would be run out of town, probably run out of the country uh, within 24 hours. Uh, so this is a sign that the New Deal order had become dominant. When an order begins to fray, when fractures become serious, that allows ideas that have been on the margins for a long time and that people have been thinking through quite systematically. Hayek is a good example of that. Milton Friedman is a good example of that. Ronald Reagan is a good example of that. These are all people who have been very systematically thinking about free markets, removing the state from economic life. Uh, but for in the 1950s and 60s, they are inconsequential. The crack up of the New Deal order in the 19, late 1960s to late 1970s allows ideas that have been in the margins to escape from the margins and compete in the mainstream of American politics. And this gives the neoliberal ideas that have been incubating for a long period of time their chance to thrive, to flourish, and ultimately through the presidency of Ronald Reagan to command. And one of the one of the many intriguing things about your book is that you you write about the the successful electoral coalition, which is then put together by the Republican Party under Reagan, which includes elements which aren't necessarily neoliberal at all, but are necessary in order to achieve a majority. The two of those that are that are probably most obvious is the uh, the rise of the evangelical right as an important component of the of the Republican Party, and the other one is fastening onto the I suppose the the white resentment uh, which had been activated by the the various civil rights legislation introduced by by uh, by the Johnson administration back in the nineteen sixties, and in those ways it accessed reliable electorates who weren't necessarily on board with the the thinking of Friedrich Hayek to this to this new coalition very successfully. Yes, the uh, Reagan's project was to make the Republican Party a majority party in American life for a very long period of time. And he could not do that with the constituencies that were committed to the Republican Party in the 1960s and 70s. They just did not constitute a majority. So he's in, a cer- he's in search of new constituencies. And he finds them in evangelicals, mostly Southerners on the one hand, Protestants, and then what in America are called white ethnics on the other who have been in conflict with blacks, uh, both groups uh, having suffered discrimination in American life. 
both struggling uh, to get ahead in unfavorable circumstances. White ethnics having had a leg up on blacks because they were not themselves blacks, African-Americans. But in the civil rights revolution of the 1960s and 70s, the state begins to try and engineer outcomes so as to bring long overdue justice and equality to America's African-American population. And Reagan is able to use that discourse of a state being brought in to remedy historic and serious discrimination. He's able to to use that story to say, look, this is another instance of a powerful state oppressing you. You can't send your kids to the schools you want to send your kids to uh, the government. If you're only having white students in your private school, may be denying you federal funds. Uh, the government is not no longer allowing you to pray to God in a classroom if you so wish your child to do that in a public or in what in Britain and Ireland would be called a, a state school. So he's used, he's able to use the ideology of removing the state from one's life to tell these people not to promote a free market economy in, the, in this way, but to say, if you elect me president, I'm going to remove racial engineering, which is impacting you negatively. I'm going to remove what the Supreme Court has tried to do to exclude religion and prayer from public schools. I'm going to allow you to pray and associate with the people who you want to associate with. And if you want to pray to the divine under my administration and politics, I'm going to do this. In other words, he hangs a scarlet letter on whatever the government is doing. And he says, see, the government is an oppressive institution. So he's able to marry the resentment that ordinary and often poor people have against um, what they take to be racial engineering, what they take to be uh, removing the government, removing prayer from schools. He's able to hook this to his belief in, in free markets and the evil of government power. And this allows him to bring in people who, as you suggested, were not necessarily sympathetic to neoliberal economies. Um, they were not committed at this point to removing the government from economic affairs, but yes, remove them from race relations and get them out of the business of telling us whether or not we can pray to God. So this becomes part of the Reagan's message of taking big government down, or as one of his supporters said, we're going to shrink the size of the federal government until we can drown it in a bathtub. What's there's many fascinating things about that, but one of the things I find particularly fascinating is that this political project is obviously it's it's incredibly incredibly successful. The Republicans hold the White House for um for twelve years. Um and even then, when they're replaced, and th this also has parallels with what happens in the in the UK with Tony Blair in the in the nineteen nineties. Um, not surprisingly, the Democrats have shifted to try and accommodate this change in the political landscape which has taken place, and so they have taken on board in the same way as you described Eisenhower, I suppose, earlier on. They have taken on board some of these new accepted wisdoms about the way society should be run. But they also, and maybe this tells us something about the somewhat protean nature of neoliberalism, they are able to attach those theories to ideas about self-actualization and identity, which are more popular on the left. And they therefore activate 
a, a kind of a way of political thinking which has its roots in the 1960s and which we can see today in everything like the libertarianism of Silicon Valley and the American tech industry and the way the counterculture became a kind of a business culture too. Yes, uh, most accounts of neoliberalism present it as uh, an elite project of billionaires and their supporters, political elites and their supporters trying to gain power for themselves and in the process undercut or strangle the democratic rights of the masses. It's seen as an elite project, as a way of securing a capitalist economy and and making sure that Democrats who might want to get their hands on capitalist revenues are unable to do so. It's, uh, so it's, it's securing capitalism's vigor. It's about securing inequality and legitimating it. My argument is somewhat different and that, and, and it's, and I say this neoliberalism in America would not have become the popular creed it became if it was just an elite project that it had, it carried appeal to the masses. I've just described once kind of appeal to you in terms of Reagan Democrats, evangelicals, get the government out of my life. Well, there's a there's a more progressive version of, of this, which I think you hit upon, which I talk at at some length in the book. And that is neoliberalism carries a message of individual freedom. It holds out the possibility that uh, an individual can escape their inherited tradition, their inherited religion, their family. If they're women, they can escape patriarchy. If they're gay, if they're gay they can escape conventional ro- roles and rules governing sexuality. Uh, and, I, and I argue that neoliberalism carried this emancipatory message to many Americans. And thus, Liberation movements that originated outside anything called neoliberalism, they were seeking to free the individual from what they took to be an over-organized society, a society over-organized by capitalist industry on the one hand and repressive government organization and regulation on the other. It sought to free these people from those constraints And as neoliberalism rises in power, it's able to gather some of that emancipatory energy for itself and to approach people who are interested in reinvention, who want to be free of convention, uh, who want to explore their individuality, who who don't want to be told by anyone how to live their lives uh, or where to live or where they in the world they can travel and who, who they can associate with. Neoliberalism carries a very powerful message uh, for these people. It's a message that I label cosmopolitanism, the ability to meet people of different walks of life, to celebrate hybridities, to celebrate unconventionality, to look for original and creative ways to to develop one's own human spirit. Uh, and to do that anywhere in the world, part of what neoliberalism did, it, it offered a, a vision of globalization and bringing uh, peoples from different walks of life together and allowing the exchanges that would emerge from um, those interactions to define a new world. Um, this harkens back to the original emancipatory promise of classical liberalism. And neoliberalism is able to revive part of it, which 
explains to me how a good portion of the new left gets co-opted by neoliberalism and helps to make sense of what otherwise seems strange, which is the degree to which someone like Bill Clinton, a Democrat, embraces the neoliberal creed. He does, he believes in free markets. He, he declares that the era of big government is over, but he also delights in the multiculturalism of the 1990s, of a, a globalized world that's got to create all kinds of new cultural exchanges that had not been possible before. And this has a profound appeal on the left, and the appeal only grows as a certain kind of left creed, communism, and with it all varieties of socialism, come crashing to the ground. And those people who have a left orientation have to begin to think of ways to reorient their left politics once communism or socialism no longer looks achievable. And one way to do that is to ground one's left identity not in critiques of capital accumulation, but in identity politics, in feminism, in gay rights, in uh, the promise of individuality and unconventionality, the ability to live a free life. And this is very much a part of the message of neoliberalism that Clinton, the Democrat, puts out in the 1990s. And an awful lot of Americans find this extraordinarily appealing. And yet, there's a paradox again here, isn't there, which is that that the the, the freedom which is in theoretically on offer from a deregulated society may not be quite the freedom that, that one may think. You know, I think of that phrase, you know, there is no alternative or that idea in classical liberalism of the invisible hand guiding the economy. And I think of a of a recent guest we had on this podcast, Leia Uppy, who describes the um the uh, restructuring was the phrase used of the Albanian economy in the 1990s after the fall of communism and the fact that these functionaries essentially came in with their strict ideological manuals about what needed to be done to um, uh, to the Albanian economy, regardless of the details of that particular society and how appropriate they might be. And there is a sense, isn't there, particularly as the 1990s wear on, that this um, that this idea becomes oppressive. I think it's fair to say, certainly for some people. Well, it is certainly deepening dramatically inequality in American society. Uh, and it offers justification and rationales for that inequality. Uh, to give you an example, in 1960, the average CEO of an American corporation made approximately 20 times what a worker in that factory or that corporation or that office was making. By 2000, that CEO is making 300 times what the average worker is making. Uh, and this is a dramatic uh, indication of the degree to which the unleashing of capitalism's power uh, is creating vast inequalities between the rich and the poor. And in that way is repeating a pattern of capitalist development very familiar from classical liberalism in the 19th century. If you remove all regulations, if you remove all constraints, uh, the tendency of capitalist enterprise is to concentrate, monopolize, control more and more of the market, uh, ex uh, exercise more and more control in ways that allow it to enrich 
itself and the capitalists in its ranks and to impoverish all kinds of other people. And this is deeply characteristic of American society and other societies that have embraced neoliberalism in the 1990s and in the first decade of the 21st century. But the uh, the fiction of neoliberalism remains so strong during this period of time uh, that it is hard to escape it and it is hard to critique it. There is protest, but it tends to be ep- episodic rather than sustained. And we have to ask, uh, why does the Democratic Party acquiesce to these neoliberal principles? Why does the Labor Party under Tony Blair acquiesce to the neoliberal principles that Margaret Thatcher uh, had implemented? Margaret, I don't know if this is a true story because it doesn't come from Thatcher herself, but like a lot of apocryphal stories, it's too good not to be true. Someone asks Thatcher in the last years of her life when she still um, had full use of her mind, what, what she regarded as her greatest accomplishment and she said, Tony Blair, <laughs> we brought Tony Blair and the Labor Party to our, over, to, over to our way of thinking. Uh, and so these inequalities are uh, characterizing um, American society. And these inequalities are going to fracture deeply American society and any other society that has embraced neoliberalism. But that fracturing is not going to come for a while. It's not really going to come till after the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, which brings me back to the importance of fictions and narratives and the ability of dominant political parties to to spread their ideas, not just throughout their own party, but throughout the society as a whole to become hegemonic. And I think if we're to understand the power of neoliberalism, we have to understand that hegemonic power. It was hegemonic in the 1990s. It was very hard to step outside of that world, to protest it, to critique it. There is the battle for Seattle in 1999, uh, uh, an uprising that took everybody by surprise, very important and an indicator of what what would be coming in terms of protest in the 21st century. But by and large, the 1990s is, is significant, not for protests constantly going on against this neoliberal regime, what really signifies the 1990s is acquiescence and the ability of the neoliberal worldview to bring in all sorts of people who you would think would have been its opponents. And and in regard to that, you make a very important, important and I think often underrated point in the book about the impact of the uh, the decline and ultimately the fall of of Soviet communism on what was going on. I mean, I I think myself that even though the Social Democratic parties in Europe had very little sympathy for the for the communist regimes in in Eastern Europe, the collapse of this attempt at a completely different economic model caused, still caused a kind of existential crisis, uh, knock on existential crisis for social democracy. And perhaps even more important, as you, as you point out, the threat of communism had, ironically, perhaps a kind of civilizing effect on capitalism in the West in the years after the Second World War. There was a fear of the proletariat. There was a fear of uprisings. And that definitely was a contributory factor to the expansion of the welfare states in the, in those countries. And when that disappeared, it did allow an older form of capitalism, red in tooth and claw, to to emerge without fear of consequences. 
I like your phrase that uh, your that communism had a civilizing effect on capitalism. In fact, I wish I had used that phrase in the book, <laughs> uh, which I can no longer do because the book uh, publishes today. Uh, but yes, I, I, I think that's that's a very apt characterization of of what I write about. And there are two things that made communism seem so dangerous to the capitalist world. One is the communists were deadly serious about building a society on something other than a capitalist foundation. So where communist societies established themselves, capitalists by and large couldn't go. There were a few who struck deals on the side. But once the Russian Revolution of 1917 happened, capitalism ceased to be global in the way it was, say, from the 1850s till the outbreak of the First World War. And it ceased to be global from the revolution of 1917 in Russia until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Because wherever communism established itself, they sought to exclude capitalist enterprise and markets, free markets, from organizing economic life. These were to be planned societies that were going to advantage the working class rather than particular individuals here and there. It was a grand scheme of transformation. It ultimately failed spectacularly, but it had a tremendous hold on an enormous number of people across the 20th century. And the and communism was enormously successful, which prompted a scholar in the U.S. and a writer named Theodore Draper, first a communist, then a devout anti-communist. But even when he was a devout anti-communist, he said the, the 20th century has been the communist century. And I think he's right about that. It was the central challenge of the 20th century. And the challenge for capitalists was, what is our answer so as to forestall the communist challenge and to keep communism from either taking our foreign markets or even worse, penetrating our domestic markets and establishing communism at home. And here we come to the second element of communism that struck fear in the hearts of capitalism, because the theory of totalitarianism, when it was dominant and uh, declared this, that once a communist state established itself, it would never be removed, that they had techniques of control and power that made them unassailable. Now, this theory turned out to be wrong, but in the 40s and 50s and 60s, it is believed. And if communism is to establish itself somewhere, it was thought it could never be conquered or removed, which explains why the U.S. did something otherwise inexplicable, fought this terrible losing war in Vietnam. Vietnam had no intrinsic importance at the time in terms of markets. It had no intrinsic importance in terms of natural resources. But the fear was communism establishes itself there. It can't be removed. And then it's the rest of Indochina. And then maybe it's Japan. And then it's um, Indonesia. And then maybe the Philippines. And once these places are taken for communism, capitalism is forever excluded. And that fear among capitalists was so great that it inclined them to compromise with their domestic adversaries, workers, labor movements in ways I argue they would not otherwise have done. Because they have to compromise to avert the worst. They have to give things to their workers in order to make them happy with their lot under a capitalist regime. And here is where your phrase of 
communism acting as a civilizing force on capitalism comes into play. They sh- capitalists are willing to share more of their revenues, willing to share more of their profits, accept organized labor as a reality in the American workplace. Compromise, share the wealth. The period when the Cold War was most intense is when progressive taxation rates are at their highest, when inequality between rich and poor is at its lowest point in the American 20th century. And this is the civilizing effect of communism. Now, to say it has a civilizing effect does not mean I'm defending communism because it was a tyranny that had ultimately to be eliminated from the world. And if a left was to come back from that, it had to come back after communism was gone. It had to rebuild itself on a different foundation. But one, a system can be a source of tyranny and it could still have a civilizing effect on a raw and uh, economic regime, capitalism that has tendencies toward brutality and severe forms of exploitation and inequality. And hence the absolute centrality of the threat of communism to the compromise that American and Western European societies are willing to engage in with working class movements, with poor people. This, I I suggest, allows social democracy to thrive in the glorious 30 years after the Second World War ends. And then, I suppose, after this period, this long period, almost two decades of unipolar supremacy for one single theory, one ring to rule them all, uh, we hit the crash in 2008. And it, it, it seems to me that in the 14 years since, I'm not sure if the neoliberal order is still in place, but it certainly seems to be at the very least creaking and in some places cracking and in other places falling apart completely. We've entered a period of chaos, confusion and uncertainty. And disorder. Yes, very much, very much, very much so. Uh, I think the crash of 2008, 2009 makes the fictions of neoliberalism insupportable uh, and uh, and and that makes the continuation of its hegemony impossible one can no longer think after 2008 2009 that neoliberalism was going to create a world of affluence that there would that there would be no losers in this neoliberal world that all countries would benefit and all groups within particular societies would benefit what 2008, 2009 made clear is that there are winners and losers in this economic struggle. And there are an awful lot of losers. And uh, the losers include countries in the global south, but losers also include working classes in the industrial or the formerly industrialized West. And basic principles of the neoliberal order that had been unquestioned during the neoliberal heyday begin to be questioned. You could not be a protectionist and a critic of free trade in the 1990s and still have a voice in politics. Ask Bernie Sanders, because he was a critic of free trade in the 1990s, as was Donald Trump, and they had no political significance whatsoever. And these gadflies, people who had been dismissed as utterly politically marginal and inconsequential, an ethno-nationalism of Trump on the right, a democratic socialism of Bernie Sanders on the left. These men and their movements become the most dynamic players in American politics in the 20-teens. 
I think Brexit is unimaginable without the crash of 2008 and 2009. Again, those who, as, as the realization sinks in, why did they say, save all the banks and not our homes? Why did the rich people recover their, their, the values of their stock market portfolios so quickly? And we've lost so much wealth in our jobs and don't know if we can continue and seem to be sinking further into poverty. Questions began to be asked that um, were not being asked during the neoliberal heyday. So the 20 teens become a decade like the 1970s when ideologies and ideas that had been firmly on the margins and being kept there by the hegemony of a central hegemonic political ideology or philosophy, that hegemony cracks and ideas on the margins become, begin to flood into the mainstream and convulse politics in the U.S. and elsewhere and unleash new energies, new ideas, new projects that are going to undermine the neoliberal order. And I think what we are living through now is the undermining of that order. It's hard to know what's going to come next, but the the integrity and the power and the authority that neoliberalism had in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century, it no longer does. And yet we don't see what we saw in 1932, in America at least, what we saw in 1932 and elsewhere was quite different, obviously. We don't see this moment of radical change in reaction to a moment of economic crisis happening in the space of two, three or four years. We don't even see what happened for good or ill in the late 70s, early 80s, a similar shift in reaction to to economic crisis. It's We're 14 years on now from the crash and it's not clear to me that there's any new clear dispensation in sight. I actually think there's two new dispensations in sight. Um, one is the authoritarian dispensation. Um, and here I think there are resonances with the 1930s. Uh, we can look back now at what was happening in the U.S. and see uh, uh, a, a revival of social democracy, of a commitment to democracy, um, a commitment to um the national legislature is embodying the sovereignty of the people and making the people sovereign and restoring democracy. But many people in the thirties thought that democracy was finished. It was too cumbersome. Uh, Those who sat in parliament were very good at making compromises, but they dithered. They weren't decisive. They couldn't get control of the economic crisis. They couldn't settle international matters. And what you really needed in place of parliaments and all that dithering and all this ridiculous talk about democracy, what you really needed were strong men able to command societies and in whom the people would invest their hopes and aspirations. In other words, the the single man rather than the democratic legislature would become the vessel for a perverted kind of democratic politics. For much of the 30s, it looks like the, the, these strong men are going to win. And I think at one point, the numbers of functioning democracies in the, in the world are down to single digits. You know, they don't even cover two hands. And Stalin in, in, in the Soviet Union and Hitler in Germany and Mussolini in Italy are thought to be the future. 
It didn't turn out to be that way. But if you're a betting person in the 1930s and you're putting a wager on what is going to come out of the 1930s, many of your wagers would be put on the side of the authoritarians. We're seeing something similar today. We can see one of the successor regimes to neoliberalism, and that is what I would call an authoritarian capitalism, which is not the same as neoliberalism. Uh, And there are authoritarians uh, all over the world now, and they recognize themselves and each other. And they make arguments very similar to the arguments that the authoritarians of the 1930s were making. Democracies don't work. They can't solve the problems of nations or of the world. Um, uh, The notion that somehow there will be an international parliament, what, the United Nations? Are you kidding me? That's got to somehow solve the the world's problems. We need a world of of four or five strong men, each with a block that they can control. And Trump will be one block and Putin would be a second block and Orban would be a little block and Erdogan would be a third block and Z would be a fourth block and maybe Modi a fifth block. And these would organize, reorganize the world um, under authoritarian uh, auspices. And it would be, you know, they there would be some kind of capitalism operative, but it would not be a neoliberal form of capitalism where contracts were honored and markets and and markets were well organized according to transparent rules. It would be it would be something else. It would be more of a crony disordered capitalism and um, not what I would call a neoliberal capitalism. We can see that future, and we have to hope that that future will not be our future in the night in the 2020s and 2030s the question is which i think is where, where you were pushing me earlier is uh, is there a progressive alternative to that and i think there is and i think um the, the election of biden embodied it and part of what characterized the biden election was a rapprochement with the left and a kind of left influence on mainstream democratic politics that in the United States we have not seen really since the 1930s and 40s. In other words, there are some of the elements that made the New Deal present in American society. But Biden's had a rough two years um, or or a year and a half. It's not clear that his Democrats are going to win in 2022. It's not clear that the progressive political order that he would like to create is going to make it right. It's it's it west it rests on a series of weak reads right now. Uh, but I think it's important not to lose hope of that, and also to recognize the quite extraordinary uh, democratic mobilization that was required in 2020 to put Biden in office and to give Democrats control of both houses of Congress. Every day now becomes clear what democracy was up against in 2020. And it's important to say that democracy won in 2020 and a progressive democracy won in 2020. That's not to say that progressive democracy is going to win in 2022 or 2024, but it's important to dwell on the significance of that 2020 victory as something that can be built on and that Democrats will need to return to if they want to preclude the authoritarian future from being theirs and if they want to find a way forward to establishing a new kind of progressive democratic and capitalist regulatory regime. 
I salute your positivity and your optimism. But maybe just one last question. I'll just push you slightly more on that, if I if I may. I mean, your book is mostly about America, and I look at Joe Biden, and I see partly what you see, but I also see an administration whose all of whose big projects are stalled because of resistance in key parts of his of his own party. Uh, I see an incredibly polarized and divided country, often engaged in just poisonous poisonous culture wars um, rather than anything else. And I, I still see a question for the 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 progressive center left, not just in the United States, where all its leaders seem to be pushing 80, which is not particularly heartening. But even I was listening to the Guardian um, uh, political journalist, John Harris, and he's no fan of Tony Blair, but he was bemoaning the fact that at least Tony Blair seemed to be excited by and interested in the project he was putting forward in 1997. Whereas Keir Starmer, there's something that feels a little bit tired, a little bit just trying to get back to normality. And surely it's going to require something more than just a return to normality to uh, to achieve the kind of the kind of ends that you're talking about there. Yes. Uh, what's the normality that we can return to? We can't we cannot return to the age of Blair. We cannot return to the age of Clinton. I, I, I don't think uh, they had their moment and a progressive po- politics now and the 2020s is going to need to look somewhat different. Uh, the, um, you know, I share your concerns, but I also think it's important to um, retain hope and to recognize that if progressivism is going to triumph, it's not going to be in one election or two. It's going to require a long march. And one can reach back into the history of progressivism and the history of the left there was a time then when the history of progressivism and the left was engaged in very, very long marches and they didn't give up hope. And one is going to have to fight for that. Uh, so that's a general principle of, of hope not to lose optimism. You know, there are encouraging signs. Um, uh, there is a very dramatic labor victory. I don't know if it's it's reached Ireland or, or, or Britain yet, but Amazon lost a very important uh, struggle over a labor union at, at one of its largest distribution plants um, in the country, happens to be in Staten Island in New York. Uh, it's a small earthquake and there may, there are going to continue to be these small earthquakes and we should not lose sight of, of, of the, them. And they, they are indication of the robustness and, uh, and of progressive politics at a very rank and file level. And that can be an invisible kind of politics, but it's also a necessary condition for built, building something more visible and building a movement that's capable of, of, of fighting for national power through one of the political parties. But let me return again to the, to the 1930s. Um, and um, uh, the, I would say that the uh, rejuvenation of democracy occurred in one country more powerfully than in others, um, that would be the United States. And its recovery in the United States um, created a foundation that allowed it to go elsewhere after World War II was over. I share some of your pessimism about the United States because because I ask myself, um, can the United States do that again? And for the reasons you described and the deep divisions that um, are an omnipresent feature of American society, which I see when I'm in the States now on a daily basis, very disheartening. The obstacles 
to that kind of democratic renewal are real. So we may ask the question as we, we come perhaps to the end of Pax Americana, where else can democratic renewal occur? It doesn't have to occur everywhere, but it has to occur in a couple places, sink deep roots, become very robust. And from there, if it's successful, it can spread to other countries and other polities. And as we contemplate the end of Pax Americana, because elements of Pax Americana, I think, are ending, just as uh, Prax, uh, Pax uh, Br Britannia ended 100 years earlier, I think we have to ask the question, where in the world do we think democracy is most capable of renewing itself, having a new beginning with the capacity to inspire not only the people of, of that nation or that European Union, but people beyond its borders so that it becomes a contagion of democracy. We've seen contagions of democracy. Let's turn to our advantage, having suffered through two year, terrible years of pandemic. Let's use the analogy of pandemic and viruses to our advantage. It's not just viruses that are contagious. It's democracy that is contagious. And if it seems to be working in some places, people elsewhere will sit up and take notice and begin to say, I want that for myself. I want that from my people. I want the people themselves to be sovereign and to have control over their lives, their economies, their futures. That ultimately is the, prob the, the promise of democracy. And I do believe in that respect that democracy will never die completely. It will die in some places. It, America may lose its democracy in the next five years. I recognize that as a very serious possibility. But the idea of democracy will not die. And someplace, someplace it will be reborn and go forward from there to uh, other parts of the world so that we can, at some point in the future, hope with reason that democracy will once again be a thriving form of politics in the world for those who so cherish it. On that uh, inspiring note, with which I, I'm very happy to agree, by the way, we will leave it there. The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order is published by Oxford University Press. Gary Gerstel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. We're going to be back very soon. Remember that you can contact us, though, with your views or your questions or any ideas you might have about what we should be covering at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.